powerful stories from the biggest names in the game. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Now, here's Jeremy Schaap. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to an athlete at Brown University whose sport has been eliminated by the school. She and others are fighting back. But first, we're joined by one of the best-loved and most widely-read writers on planet Earth. That is no exaggeration. He's someone I've known since I was a teenager. He's someone you know, certainly, the great, the one and only Mitch Album. Mitch, thank you for being with us. Hi, Jeremy. Nice to be with you. It's great to talk to you. You know, uh, it's it's been a while, and um, I think about... Uh, <laughs> You're, you're not that much older than me. I'm 50. I guess, what are you now, Mitch? 60? Is, is that, or 59? 62. 62. Um, but I think, you know, when I think of you, naturally, I think of you and my father on the sports reporters and all those years you were um, together on the set of that show. And, and you, were, you were a kid when you started doing that. And you became a national figure. You became so prominent in the industry so young. Looking back on it now, what are the things you would tell your younger self? Uh, slow down. You move too fast. <laughs> uh, I was, you know, I did a lot of those things partly because I was in a mad rush. And, and I've been extremely blessed to have seen the benefits of being in a mad rush in life, but also to see the wisdom of slowing it down. And I hit a screeching halt when I was 37 years old, after, after having that fast start and young start, and I was a columnist when I was 25 years old at the Detroit Free Press, and I was on the sports reporters, I think, before I was even 30. And, and uh, all of a sudden, at 37, uh, I started visiting an old college professor of mine named Maury Schwartz, who was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease. And I, I wrote a book to pay his medical bills, which, quite frankly, Jeremy, was probably the first major thing in my life that I had really done for anyone else. Up till that point, I think I was mostly doing things for myself. And I wrote a book called Tuesdays with Maury that was supposed to be a little book that uh, paid his bills. And it turned into something quite different. And um, suddenly I became quite a different person and was viewed as different. And uh, the second kind of portion of my working life has been a lot about learning exactly the question that you Ask me, what do you tell your younger self or your busier self or your more consumed self uh, and how to be smarter about your life that way? Speaking with Mitch Album, Tuesdays with Maury, um, not just one of the great publishing successes of its time or any time, but a book that is a success by any measure, if you measure it by the impact it had on people's lives. Why do you think, why do you think it resonated so far and so wide, that book? I think the answer is that it's two things. One is that almost everybody has had a teacher in their life, an older person. It doesn't necessarily be a professor. It could be a grandparent or an uncle or a music teacher or somebody, but somebody they connected with who really taught them important lessons in life. And, you know, I still run into people to this day, 25 years after, after uh, visiting with Maury, who pull out their wallets and say, this was my Maury, and they take out a photo of somebody. And so I, I recognize, I didn't know this at the time, but I see it now that that was a very universal thing. The other part is that the other person in that book, which was me, 
Um, there is a lot of universality to also because I was young and searching and busy and, and I was seemingly successful, but not particularly satisfied. And I think there are a lot of people in this world who feel that too. And so they either identify with my character or they identify with Maury's character and the story becomes theirs. And so I always felt that it wasn't my writing that made Tuesdays with Maury a, a, a popular book. I think it was the universality of the relationship between an older person and a younger person um, learning things from one another. And I was just lucky to have a really great older person who was very wise and, and, and whose, whose sentences are still being repeated and taught 25 years after he left this earth uh, in, in schools as far as China and, and Australia and Sweden. And you said you wrote it to pay the medical bills, but of course, whenever you're writing something, you know, there are hopes, there are all kinds of hopes and there are all kinds of aspirations. What, what were your, what were your most optimistic, uh, hopes? What, what were, what, what were the things you thought, um, what did you think was the best thing that could happen with Tuesdays with Maury? My, my most optimistic hope, and I remember, I remember talking about this with your dad because he saw an early uh, version of it. Um, my optimistic hope was that I wouldn't end up with all of them in the trunk of my car, <laughs> that I'd be driving around for, you know, every, every Thanksgiving, I'd be handing them out to relatives trying to get rid of them. They only printed 20,000 copies of Tuesdays with Maury, and they didn't think it would sell any more than that. And I had been a sports writer literally right up until the day that that came out and fully expected to go full back into sports. And this would be a total anomaly. In fact, I, I was worried that I remember having a discussion with my literary agent uh, saying, do you think this is going to like affect my sports writing career? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, if I go into locker rooms after a book like this, are they going to make fun of me? They're going to say, ah, I read that book. You cried at the end. Ha ha. You know, you're a baby. And um, he said to me, Half jokingly, I wouldn't worry about it. Nobody's going to read it. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that was my literary agent. So I, I don't think he was dead serious. I think he was more like, you know, it's not going to have a big audience. But, um, you know, that's what we were, we were all thinking that. So I didn't have any big optimistic hopes about it. And when it came out, it was just a little tiny book. It didn't catch on fire uh, the minute it came out in August. I mean, who publishes a book in, in <laughs> August if you're planning on having, being some kind of big bestseller? So we just watched it and people just started to, you know, read it and hand it to somebody, hand it to somebody else. But back then there were a lot of small bookstores, thank goodness. And, and they, you know, the proprietors would say, hey, this new book came in. It's good. You should read it. So let me take it home. They gave it to somebody else. And it just sort of was a word of mouth thing. I don't think it could happen today, to be honest. And it didn't even get on a bestsellers list, even at the bottom of a bestsellers list for about three or four months until after it was out. And that's like sort of unheard of. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I, yeah, I, we're speaking with Mitch Album, the great sports writer and writer period about Tuesdays with Maury, the first of his non-sports books, which was, uh, and this is massive understatement, a publishing and cultural phenomenon, touchstone. Um, after the tremendous success of Tuesdays with Maury, you didn't just go back to sports writing. You wrote other books. You wrote nonfiction books. You wrote fiction books. Um how how would you and I don't I don't know the right category I don't know the publishing nomenclature what, what genre is there even a genre that encompasses what those books are Mitch if I had to make one up I guess it would be you know stories that inspire 
stories that have some hope. You know, I, 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 uh, I kind of learned early on, you know, the transition out of, I never wrote another sports book after two says more. I had written a couple before, you know, Bo Schembechler's autobiography, Bo and Fab Five uh, about the Michigan basketball players. And I never have written a sports book since. And I think the reason why was because, you know, before Tuesdays with Maury, people would recognize me from the sports reporters or other things. And you'd be in an airport and they'd say, hey, hey, uh, you know, sports reporter guy, you know, who's going to the Super Bowl? And you'd say, you know, Patriots. And you just kind of keep rolling on the moving moving <laughs> sidewalk, you know. And, and they were satisfied. They got their answer and they were happy. <laughs> then after Tuesdays with Maury, you know, people would recognize me and they, they'd stop me and they'd say, uh, hey, um, my mother just died of cancer and the last thing we did was read your book together. You know, can I talk to you for a second? Well, you can't go Patriots and keep going. You know, you become um, a, a, a conduit for all kinds of sad stories uh, here and around the world. And I not a, still not a day goes by if I'm out in public that somebody doesn't talk to me about Tuesdays with Maury. And if I go do a talk somewhere or whatever, I can have 300 people in a row come up and each one telling me about someone they lost, someone they died, someone who was close to them. And so you come to realize that there's a lot of sadness in the world and there's a lot of heartbreak and there's a lot of people struggling to deal with loss. And I became motivated to try to provide stories that offer comfort in that world. So I wrote the five people you meet in heaven, you know, about a man who, who died thinking that his life was meaningless and goes to heaven and meets five people who proved to him that he was wrong. And all of my stories, fictional or otherwise, all the way up to my most recent one, which was a nonfiction story about a little girl at an orphanage that I operate, all have the one thing in common of providing some hope and, and feeling better when you're done with it. Because I have seen the sadness of the world, um, you know, individually and, and in, in countries around the world. And um, I don't know, I just feel like maybe I can, the little good that I can do with the little talent that I have would lie in trying to make people feel a little bit better about things when they were done reading a book or watching a movie. At this moment in time, uh, as we are now uh, in our fifth month, I guess it is, of the pandemic here in the United States, and Detroit was particularly hard hit early, like the Northeast and portions of the Pacific Northwest, um, what gives you hope now? Uh, when we see so much suffering and we see so much death around us? Well, my hope is that it's temporary. Uh, you know, we, 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 Jeremy, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. And so I can say this to you. I've seen worse. Um, I, you know, I was in Haiti in 2010, just weeks after the earthquake. And, uh, you know, it's, it's led to a, you know, a lifetime involvement there. I'm in Haiti every month of my life now. I have an orphanage and that's discussion for another time, but I've seen, I've seen, you know, dead bodies in the street and, and people with no hope and no water and no food and, and, and no way out. So I always keep that in mind. And that's not the only disaster place that I've, I've been to. So I try to keep those places in mind when I look at our situation here. Okay. It's awful in terms of the change we've had to make in our lives, but we actually have some alternatives we can take. First of all, we have a government that, you know, for whatever criticisms everybody wants to level at it, many justified, it provides unemployment insurance, uh, you know, and a $600 check, you know, in addition to that, you know how few countries in the world do that for their citizens? 
you know, there's no such thing as that in Haiti. You know, you know, oh, oh, well, help us, government. We had this tragedy. So give us six hundred dollars extra a week plus unemployment. It, it, it's non-existent. You know, we have masks and 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 advice as to how to protect ourselves that we can actually, you know, stave this thing off as opposed to, you know, you had a little hut that you lived in and, and, and a tsunami hit like in the Philippines where I was up there. And, uh, and and your whole life is washed away and all your possessions are up in some tree somewhere and you can't rebuild because there's no money. So I try to just keep that stuff in mind and say, we will get through this. It's awful. I'm not minimalizing it in any way. And of course, the people who have died from it can never, there's no words. There's just no words. But we do have now knowledge of the disease and ways that we can uh, protect against it, that we don't have to get it. Whereas you can't say that in an earthquake, you can't say that in a hurricane or a tsunami. Uh, and so I try to just, again, try to count the blessings of, of the situation that we're in and hope that next year at this time, when you and I might talk again, we're actually out of it because a vaccine, you know, we do know the way out. We just haven't gotten to it yet. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm praying that we can get to that vaccine. And Mitch, uh, you know, I wanted to talk to you as well about a column you wrote last week that made a big impact, uh, made a big impact on me, and a lot of people were talking about it. It was a response, really, um, to the anti-Semitic comments made by Deshaun Jackson and posted by Deshaun Jackson, Stephen Jackson, subsequently uh, calling those comments the truth. Um, And I think you described it as, and others have, the tepid um, response, the tepid um, condemnation of those remarks. Can you talk about the process of of formulating and writing that column? Well, you know, I, I try to choose my words carefully on these issues that are going on today. Uh, and I do a lot of listening and I think it's OK to listen. Uh, but when Deshaun Jackson made those comments uh, on social media and then, you know, got some blowback, against them and then was supported by, as you mentioned, Stephen Jackson, Malik Jackson, Malcolm Jenkins got involved. And I I kept waiting for the massive outrage that we see when other people express hate speech. And it was hate speech and it didn't come. And I felt, you know, a day passed, two days passed, three days passed. It took almost a week for the Eagles to even issue a punishment. The league didn't issue a punishment. And the Eagles, after all that time, uh, did an undisclosed fine, which, as we all know, is the slightest form of a, a wrist slap that you can do in professional sports. You don't even know what the, how much money it was. Now, I'm not a person who wants people to lose their jobs. I don't call for people to lose their jobs. And I think far too many people have lost their livelihoods or careers or reputations over things that they said that they, they then apologized for or things from their past you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago that they, they don't, don't even think anymore. And yet they have, you know, they've, they've lost everything. So in watching the response and seeing nothing, I felt compelled to say, listen, maybe people don't realize it, but anti-Semitism is hate speech, is hatred, is bigotry. It's also the oldest form of bigotry in the world. It goes back to the Bible. And I laid out in that column some examples that, you know, I said, I hope that Deshaun Jackson, I don't need him to lose his job. doesn't mean anything to me or, or other Jewish people if he loses his job. Just would like him to hear this. And then I started laying out how Jews have been uh, persecuted and demonized 
from the earliest days, <clears throat> literally that you can read in the Bible, to uh, to the Crusades, to when they were blamed for the bubonic plague, to when it was illegal for them to intermarry or hold jobs in government, to uh, you know when they were characterized as big nosed and and uh, and money grubbing and dirty, and uh, you know all the way up to modern day, uh, where you know there's still people walking around this earth. Uh, as you well know, Jeremy, with uh, numbers tattooed in their arms, and they were rounded up like cattle and and herded off and systematically, you want to talk about systemic uh, racism and how about systemic murder uh, under the Nazi regime uh, and killed in in horrific numbers, six million Jews. And if those people were alive today, there'd be two and a half times more Jews in the world than there are. So it didn't just affect that it affected the future. So when you post something about Hitler or quoting Hitler or Louis Farrakhan and his anti-Semitic comments about you know Jews being devils and all, which is the same kind of hate speech that you could read in, 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 in parts of Germany in the late 30s, um, know that you are feeding into an ancient and, 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 and long-standing hate speech. And you can't be about love and understanding if you're going to hate a particular group. And I think I wrote a line in there that you can't separate one hate from another or from a larger hate. It's like separating a breeze from the wind. And I just wanted that to be heard. I didn't want anybody to, you know, lose their careers or anything like that. I just thought it was important to be heard. It was just a column. Um, but apparently it, it struck a nerve and was, you know, was passed around to a lot of people. It was important words from Mitch Album. Mitch, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking this time. Uh, it's great just catching up and it's uh, inspiring to hear you talk about whatever you talk about. It always has been. Thank you for being with us. Well, you're kind, Jeremy. Uh, you've been a longtime friend and as you say, I know you I, I knew you before all your whiskers were in, you know, <laughs> I watched, I watched your beard. come in. <laughs> That's right. So, uh, you know, we, we go way back and I hear, uh, I know, you know, perhaps it embarrasses you, but I hear the echoes of your father in your voice and it, it pleases me to no end. And, uh, your, your dad was one of the greatest people I, I had the privilege to know and work with. And, um, you know, getting to know you was an additional bonus through that process. So anytime you want to chat, I'm always here. Thanks for the time. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Over the last several weeks, many colleges have made the decision to cut certain sports as a cost-saving measure. Many of them are doing so as a response to the pandemic. But at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island, 11 sports were cut a couple of months ago. And apparently it had nothing to do with the pandemic, but a long-standing plan at Brown to eliminate some sports to, in the words of the university, strengthen the possibilities for other sports and to make them more viable. This obviously has led to a consternation, which is an understatement, from the athletes whose teams have been cut. And uh, three of those sports, men's cross country and track and field, were reinstated after an athlete-led uh, movement to do so. Joining us now is an athlete from one of the sports that has remained cut, that is no longer being offered at Brown, or at least that is the plan. We're joined by the junior fencer, Anna Sassini. Anna, thank you so much for being with us. 
Yeah, thank you for having me. Now, one of the things that's going on here, um, from what what I've read, is that it Brown was planning to eliminate these sports uh, for some time, um, and did not inform the athletes that this was a possibility, and was it was presented to the athletes and presumably the coaches as well as a fait accompli. Um, is that how it happened? Uh, yes, that is absolutely correct. Um, the way that they announced that they were cutting our sports were um, at around a little bit after noon on, um, at the end of May when they made their announcement to us. Uh, they sent out a mass email to all athletes um, out of nowhere where they were saying, hey, there's a Zoom call at 1 o'clock, like in less than an hour. You should all really try to be on it. Uh, and so none of us had any idea what it was. We assumed it was just an athletics update about um, how things were going to go in the fall. Uh, this was end of May, so they hadn't really told us very much about whether we were coming back yet or not anyways. And so uh, we all got on it, and in the span of just 10 minutes, they announced that they were cutting 11 varsity sports. Um, and after the fact, I found out that my my coach and all of our coaches had only been told that um, their sports were being cut 30 minutes before us with very little warning as well. Um, so, yeah, we had no idea that this was even under consideration, uh, that this was even a possibility. Why did Brown make this decision, Anna? Um, they claim that they did so to increase competitiveness. Uh, they have not been very forthcoming with any of the data that was done by the external review committee that they um, they hired some consultants to do it and um, they have not provided any of that data publicly so we're not sure exactly uh, what the data was that led them to make this decision they just said that um, there were too many sports and they said that they couldn't handle all of them all of the teams that were cut are pretty, um, relative to other sports, pretty low, um, pretty low cost-wise, um, just in terms of, like, in individually. Like, I know that for us, the fencing program, um, we don't even practice on campus. We don't even use, really, the facilities. Um, we actually do most of our training off campus, um, and we do a lot of our own fundraising. Same with several of the other sports that were cut. Um, a lot of them are even almost entirely self-funded. Um, and so, yeah, they didn't. They, and then they told us that it was about making sports more competitive, um, despite the fact that all of the sports that were cut have very impressive accomplishments. For fencing, we've qualified someone to the NCAA um, almost every year for the last decade. And, uh, you know, we're a very small team. We're around 20 people um, 20, 25 people, and that's the men and women's teams uh, together, so our fencing program together. Um, and so, you know, we are by definition uh, a competitive team, same with the other teams that were cut. Um, and so, yeah, honestly, we uh, we don't really know. They, they say it was to increase competitiveness, but um, they haven't given us any of the data that they really used to make that decision. Um, we don't have access to it, and so uh, we're not sure. We're speaking to Anna Sussini. She is a fencer at Brown University, which has decided to cut fencing as a varsity program. Um, the fact that Brown had this program, how did that factor into your decision to attend Brown? Um, so when I was looking at colleges, um, fencing has been a huge part of my life for 
uh, almost 10 years now. And um, for me, it's, it's kind of the most, it's like the central structuring component, like what time I wake up in the morning, what time I go to bed, what I eat, my time management, all of it for as long as I can remember has been structured around fencing. Um, so when I was applying to colleges, I was only really looking at schools with fencing programs, and most of those schools were Division One fencing programs. Um, now, Brown just ha- had hired a new coach. Uh, his name is Alex Ripa. Uh, he was hired so right before my uh, senior year of high school, so three years ago. And um, he's an incredible coach. He has a very successful club um, that he runs out of Providence, Rhode Island, that has had multiple highly ranked internationally and nationally competitive fencers. Um, he also coached at Harvard for a long time. So he's an amazing coach. And um, I was really, really excited to come to Brown because not only was I going to be able to fence for a Division One school, which had always been my dream um, and had always been like my, my athletic goal, but I was also going to get to do so under him. And he had this amazing dream of building us into a very competitive team. And um, it was really incredible because usually you don't, um, you know, when you want that type of change to happen, um, because his his goal was really for us to be an Ivy championship winning team. Um, and when you want change to happen, you don't always feel the progress. Um, but with this, we did. And the two years um, that I've been at Brown so far, you could feel it like every practice, every tournament, Every month that went by of the season, we were just getting closer and closer to reaching that goal. And our recruits every year were getting better and better. Um, and then this year in particular, you know, we had the best recruits we've, we've ever had coming in. Um, I actually just got elected to be captain for the upcoming year. So I was super excited um, because, you know, fencing means the world to me, but this team means the world to me as well. And all of them are so talented. Um, and a lot of them have been fencing for between eight and ten years apiece, you know. Um, and so I was super excited to, you know, to help him see that vision because that was the vision that I, that I signed on for when I was looking at schools and when I decided to go to Brown. Um, and so, yeah, it played a, a very big role in, um, in where I was looking to go to school. And I'm really disappointed um, that Brown decided to cut their team out of nowhere. But I'm optimistic that, um, that they'll be able to fix what they've done. You say you're disappointed. Um, that's obvious. Could you elaborate for us? What were you feeling? What was your reaction? What was that moment like when you found out that, that fencing was being eliminated? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, when I found out, I it, it was so all of a sudden because just even the email that we got telling us there was a Zoom meeting was really last minute. And I didn't see it until you know right before the meeting started because um, I'd, been, I'd been working all day. Um, and so I was just shell shocked and I, I texted my, um, the captain of the men's team cause we work together a lot cause the fencing program is very, um, it's really, you know, one program. And, um, I texted him and I was like, did our team just get cut? And he was like, yeah, I think so. And, you know, all of my teammates were just so upset. Um, all of the, um, all of the captains of the other teams, uh, we got into contact with them within a few days to try to figure out, you know, what can we do? Um, because all of us were just devastated. And it was really, um, especially, you know, if you see there's an Excellence in Athletics at Brown website where they outline this whole new initiative. Um, and 
honestly, it's it was kind of insulting to hear um, that, you know, the reason for cutting us was was not related to cost or COVID or anything. It was because they were launch, launching this new excellence initiative and our teams just didn't make the cut for that. Um, and that's something that's really disappointing, not just disappointing, but um, frankly, a little bit insulting to hear when, you know, you've put so much work, so much dedication, so much passion into the sport, you know, not just me and my teammates, but all the teams that were cut. Um, and so to hear that was, was really, um, what was, yeah, it was borderline insulting and, um, not just that, but they actually said, uh, they tried to argue that it was a good thing that they did it during a pandemic. Um, that they said that the uncertainty meant that we would have, you know, more time to evaluate all our options, but, you know, they announced it past basically all of the transfer deadlines. Um, the one transfer deadline that hadn't passed was June 15th, um, which was, uh, which was the deadline for if you're going to get recruited to another Ivy league school, not division one, just Ivy league school. And of course, you know, any athlete will tell you that by end of May before the upcoming school year, almost all recruitment spots are filled um, unless, you know, someone's maybe decided to take a gap year or something unexpected. And so it just wasn't a feasible option. And even that deadline, you know, they didn't give it to us openly. We had to ask for it. Um, me and my co-captain were, me and the men's captain were like emailing people trying to figure out like what options we could give our teammates. Um, and so, and so, yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't done in a spirit of honesty and it was, um, and it was, it was very upsetting and it was even more destabilizing because there's so much, so many other things going on. And the fact that they tried to paint it, like it was a good thing that they did it during a pandemic was just made it even worse. Anna Susini is the women's fencing captain at Brown university, which announced the decision to eliminate the program. Um, but Anna and other athletes who have been affected are pushing back We appreciate your efforts, Anna, and uh, thank you so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. In this abbreviated and very different kind of baseball season, there will be a universal designated hitter. The National League, which was founded in 1876, will for the first time use the DH. The American League instituted the DH all the way back in 1973. Seven years later, in the summer of 1980, the National League was on the cusp of following suit. But one man's passion would alter baseball history. We might like to think that our world has been shaped by the decisions we've made that history is the accumulation of our intentions. But the universe isn't that orderly. Sometimes things are the way they are only because someone went fishing. Since I was probably four or five, I loved to get up early in the morning and be the first person on the water. It's just being out in nature and having a good time. Growing up in the family that owned the Philadelphia Phillies, Robert Carpenter III drank deeply the spirit of baseball. We became involved with the Phillies in 1943 with my grandfather. Some of the old school, which certainly my father was, 
the diehard field guys, uh, I doubt if many of them really like the designated hitter. Designated hitter. Oh, I said we don't like the designated hitter. You're going to adapt the hitter pretty soon. No, we won't. Have to. No, we won't. But the stench didn't prevent National League executives from wallowing in envy as their American League counterparts saw gains in runs and attendance with the advent of the designated hitter. This ball club drew uh, less than 800,000 people last year, and that's the, that is the quintessential challenge. Frank Cashin was the Mets general manager in the 1980s. Paid attendance was still the big thing, and that was uh, one of the big reasons why we went after the designated hitter. By the summer of 1980, Cardinals general manager John Claiborne was the leader of a National League faction determined to wring the bats out of the hands of the pitchers. You had certain National League people. They were adamant. It's been done this way. We ain't changing it. I, I can't accept that. I never could about anything. Tal Smith is a former general manager of the Houston Astros. I thought it was best at that time because a lot of fans really don't enjoy a, a two to one or a three to two ball game as much as they do a seven to six game. Ruley Carpenter's Philadelphia Phillies had their own reasons. You look at what's to your advantage at the time. And from a tactical standpoint, the DH would have worked in our favor. Former Phillies vice president, Bill Giles. The Phillies decided they wanted it because we had uh, a couple of good hitters that weren't very good in the field, Keith Moreland and Greg Luzinski. It was decided that there would be a yes-no vote at the National League meetings in August of 1980. If a simple majority, seven of the 12 teams voted yay, the designated hitter rule would be adopted. And when the discussion came up about the DH, we were informed that the DH would not be effective until a year and a half later, so I didn't know what to do. Knowing that the DH rule wouldn't take effect in the NL until 1982 and now uncertain of what to do, Bill Giles tried to reach out to his owner, Ruley Carpenter. On August the 13th of 1980, the day that the vote was taken in the National League on the designated hitter, I was fishing with my daughter and my goddaughter at a location in the Delaware Bay known as the Anchorage. So I couldn't get in touch, so I didn't know what to do. So I abstained in the vote. And of course, an abstention is the same as a no. Again, former Cardinals general manager, John Claiborne. I was less than happy. Uh, I mean, here where he's, I'm counting my votes on my fingers. I said, we got enough votes here. And then Pittsburgh, Harding Peterson, the GM for the Pirates, was told to vote the way the Phillies vote. So when I abstained, they abstained, and then Houston also abstained. With the tally at four yeas, five nays, and three abstentions, Bill Giles wasn't ready to surrender. I asked for a recess because I was desperately trying to get in touch with Mr. Carpenter. Well, when you're out fishing, I mean, to have your daughter and goddaughter with you and you're having fun and catching a few fish and I just kept thinking, I wonder what poor old Bill Giles is going through over in that meeting. <laughs> with Giles still unable to reach Carpenter, the count stood. The abstentions had undone the push for the designated hitter. Again, former Mets general manager Frank Cashin. To pass and not vote was uh, 
I was going to say cowardly, but that's too strong a word. It was frustrating, let me say that. It was frustrating. And that went with all three of them. Uh, I mean, make a vote. Belly up at the bar and uh, show some courage and make a vote. They didn't. Again, then Astros GM, Tal Smith. I certainly understand John's frustration. Uh, if the vote had taken the day before or the day after, uh, chances are the National League would have had the DH from 1982 on. When we left the meetings, I, I told people I wanted the ownership back to the table again. And I said, well, I'm going to put it out there every six months. Little did I know I wasn't going to last six days. <laughs> Five days after the meeting, the Cardinals fired John Claiborne. You lost the flag carrier, which was me. I was a thorn in the side of those people who were against it. And I think once you lost that, it sort of just disappeared. The National League has yet to again vote on the DH. There's a good chance it may never. Former Phillies Vice President Bill Giles. The result of Mr. Carpenter going fishing is, is rather profound because it would have changed a lot of things in baseball. I'm glad I went fishing, and uh, philosophically, I'm an old school guy, and I like the way it turned out. And on the day in question, we caught 39 sea trout, two flounder, and one shark for a grand total of 42 fish. Not bad. In October 1980, the Phillies won their first and only World Series under the Carpenter family ownership. That offseason, the Phillies traded outfielder Greg Luzinski to the White Sox. He would go on to win the designated Hitter of the Year award in both 1981 and 1983. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.